If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Share a couple of stories from your time flying the Lightning that might be of interest to our viewers because I know you fired also the last two missiles on the Lightning. Is that true? actually I did? Yeah, that's, that's actually that's probably the most the most vivid story. I mean, there there's probably a lot if I if I really dig down in in the memory. I mean. I was really lucky on the Lightning in that uh, I did two uh, armament practice camps out in Cyprus um, you know, in my time on five squadrons, so I did one in the early part of 1987 and then we went out again in the summer uh, and uh, when we were there in the summer it was the very last Lightning uh, APCs that were held in, in Akrotiri uh, and we actually did take over uh, from 11 squadron so we had a couple of days where we had both the squadrons uh, actually at Akrotiri and, uh, and in fact uh, Ian Black in his book The Last of the Lightnings has got a lovely photo taken in the accommodation with uh, 11 squadron guys on the lower level of the accommodation block and the 5 squadron guys oh, nice. on, on, on the upper level and that is effectively all the Lightning pilots that oh, existed yeah. in the Air Force at the time wow. which, which it's a really lovely photo and I, I do treasure that one actually so uh, um, and, and we had a gr you know, great time you know do, doing our air-to-air -air gunnery out there and of course everybody knew that it was was the last Lightning deployment uh, so it, it was a really really special time yeah. you know and, and, and we had quite a number of those you know so I, I Ended up going out to, uh, to Germany to RF Bruggen in November. It was the very last, it was the swan song of Five Squadron. Uh, and we went out to Bruggen for two weeks and uh, we did, did a lot of flying around the North German plane at low level, like the, like the Lightning guys with the Mark II A's back in the, back in the sort of 70s. And uh, I, th I think I think the the lightning came home before the before the 80s, but uh, certainly in the 1970s, you know. So we got a got a taste of what that job was like, um, you know. And and that that was a great time. But yeah, going back, to the last day of the last day, the uh, the lightning was actually in operational service. It's 27th of April, uh, 1988. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I remember that date very very shortly, because uh, it is very significant. But uh, 27th of April. Um, we were holding Southern QRA, Quick Reaction Alert. At the time, we used to have Northern QRA, Southern QRA. I think it's just a, a, single, uh, a single entity now. It certainly was when, when we were doing it on the F3 uh, for, for a number of years anyway. Um, but, uh, and we, we were due to uh, do the very last morning of QRA on the 27th of April. And, uh, and at midday, we were handing over to 56 Squadron at Watersham. And that was it, midday the lightning force down declared from NATO. So that was it, it was the last day. Uh, and I was, uh, I was scheduled to be Q2 that morning. Uh, Q1 was uh, a guy called John Carter. And uh, you know, we pitch up and do the, the standard QRA handover. It used to be, at, I think it used to be at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, so we pitch up at the queue shed 10 minutes early. We get the handover brief from the two guys going off queue. Uh, and uh, 
what we used to do there, one at a time, we'd go out to the aeroplane, we'd do a walk around. So you'd always do a walk around on QRA, you'd, you'd put all the electrics on, you'd fire everything up, make sure everything worked. Uh, and I used to leave my flying helmet, you know, on the, on the canopy arch uh, at the top and uh, my life jacket I used to leave at the bottom of the, 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 uh, the step, the, the ladder. Um, and and Q2, the Q2 shed was, was the furthest, so we had the crew room. It, it was basically a tin shed. <laughs> uh, pe pe people who know and are, and are familiar with, with Binbrook, they'll know the Q shed. So uh, <laughs> it's certainly not the Hilton. So, so it was a, an accommodation block at, at the corner, and then you went into the first, first shed, uh, which was uh, Q1, and then Q2 was the second one. Um, and so JC and I, you know, do all, do all our checks, sit down and be naive young lads, you know, we're going, well, it's just going to be a few hours of watching a couple of movies and then we'll clear off at lunchtime and you know, probably fly the aeroplanes off, use the fuel, land, and then they'll take, take the live weapons off. Because, mm -hmm. of course, QRA, you, you're flying with live weapons uh, and, a, and a full gun. Um, and we hadn't been settled down too long. I think we just about managed a cup of, cup of coffee and, and some toast. And then the, uh, the squawk box, which was the direct comms between uh, the, the command center, which at the time was, uh, was Neatis Head, um, you know, came into life. And it was uh, calling QRA to cockpit. Yeah. And of course we go, huh? <laughs> we both leapt up, you know, ran, ran across, you know, jumped in the aeroplane, you know, life jacket, you know, life jacket on, helmet on, gang bar up. It was, it's got a starting gang bar, which just turns everything on. Ground power came on and uh, here JC checking in. Yeah, Q1's at cockpit readiness. You know, I press the button, QT's cockpit readiness. And then, uh, then the, the squawk box kicked into life. Okay, uh, you know, for, from, for Southern QRA, uh, for, you know, for uh, Q1, whatever his call sign was, um, you know, for a live missile firing in Aberporth range, which was where we used to go to do it, you know, off, uh, in Cardigan Bay. Um, you know, vector this, climb this, contact need to set on this frequency. You know, if Q1 goes US, Q2 is to launch. Okay, I'll fire that one away. He's going to go. Rah, 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 rah. So I'm sitting there going, no, he's going to get all the glory. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, acknowledged. So we both acknowledged, and I hear him press the press the starter. And of course, the lightning with its aft pin starter has got a very, very unique sound. So I can hear the wee whoosh and the first engine start. And of course, you know, in a in a in the sort of um, the steel building that we were in you know, it reverberates around. So yeah, okay, that engine's running. Then I hear, Wee! nothing. <laughs> Going, okay. And every Lightning pilot listening to this will go, oh, that's a, an A failure or a B failure. It's basically a failure of the starter. Right. And usually at that stage, the ground crew get up on the spine of the aeroplane um, and they, the, the aft pin tank is in the spine just, just behind the cockpit. It's a big, big compartment that opens up and the tank is in there there's enough I believe from memory for six starts okay um pin is an awful stuff isopropyl nitrate it's mm. it's a it's a self-generating uh, uh fuel so it doesn't need oxygen because it produces its own so once it's ignited it's going that's it and that's it and there's nothing you can do to stop it uh, so it's a pretty uh, pretty nasty stuff um, and um, and usually the, the reason for the, the, the start failure is a, is a stuck valve 
And the guys used to know which valve it was, and quite often they'd get up there with a soft-headed mallet, and they'd hammer the valve. And then they'd usually go, give it another try. So I can hear all this going on next door. And there was this wee, followed by this enormous bang, going, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> followed by a US starter's blown up. Oh God. And of course, you know, there's all mayhem. So I thought, well, I was told to launch. So I pressed the button and go, Q2's launching. So while all this mayhem's going on in the shed next door to me, I fire up the engines and I go, I better pay attention to all of this yeah. now. <laughs> in fact, I've started doing that when I heard the first starter fail. I better start paying attention to what I need to yeah, do yeah. Uh, and adjust myself in the seat. And um, so anyway, I end up launching. It was a fairly grobbly morning, uh, I seem to remember. And uh, I get airborne clear off over to uh, Aberporth range. So it take, probably from Binbrook took about 20 minutes, 25 minutes to get over there. So, you know, Mark 6 Lightning, you could do about an hour sortie, mm -hmm. un unrefueled. You know, Not I mean, if, if, if we were going refueled, you could go for hours, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, we used to, you know, we used to go all the way to Cyprus and refuel uh, all the way down there, maybe five, five and a half hours. And um, I arrive at the range. The range gate is a little island that's just, uh, uh, just on the north side of the, the range. So I pitch up there and a hawk pitches up on my wing, uh, which has been launched from Valley. And he's going to do the photo chase for the firing because, of course, they had all this planned. They just didn't bother yeah. telling it. Well, they didn't tell JC and me that it was going to happen. Um, so, of course, I pitch up there. I'm looking at the fuel and I'm going, right, OK, fuel's fine. And we were always going to recover into Valley at the end. Uh, to debrief. Mm -hmm. So fuel was never going to be a problem and uh, contact the range and the range goes, yep, the Jindavik's airborne, you know, we're bringing you into the pattern at minus 15. And, and the way they did it was they, they ran you around a trace and they do your countdown. They brought you into, they brought you into, the, they brought you into the firing uh, position and, um, and then, um, you know, they clear to fire when you were actually in the firing zone. Round we went, and I armed, armed the missiles up and everything, and everything was working. And they brought me in, contact with the, uh, the target. Uh, and the Jindavik used to tr uh, trail, was effectively a towed decoy yeah. with flares in it, because mm -hmm. they didn't want to shoot down the Jindavik. Uh, you know, you just shot the, shot the flare target, which for most of those missiles back in those days used to work really, really well. Uh, so I came round, and uh, you know, the, I mean, this is, this is a live war round that I'm carrying you know, limited rounds where they replace the warhead with a telemetry pack so you can see what the missile's doing. Um, and, you know, the old heart's going and my, my you know, my, my uh, I was probably breathing quite deeply, you know, can't mess this up, can't mess this up. You know, and it's sort of, you know, five, four, three, two, one, you know, I remember the thing, punch, clear to fire. Uh, clear to fire, firing, firing. Now, I had an acquisition, I'd had an acquisition for about 20 seconds. Um, I pulled the trigger and this missile went off and I broke out of the way and, and the hawk sort of followed me and carried on filming and I dipped the left wing and I watched the missile going straight for the flare, bang, and the flare pack went off, you know, and it was sort of, woohoo, it works, yeah. you know, it's great. Um, and uh, there's a couple of moments of silence, you know, as he, right, you know, vector, vector this. So I, I went onto the vector and he said, uh, came back to me and said, do you have enough fuel for a second, second firing? I went, oh, <laughs> oh, and because I'm looking at the fuel now going, oh, it's yeah. not, not if you bring me in at 15 minutes, said, you know, 
I'm getting quite tight on fuel now. How tight can you make the pattern so I can bring you at minus five? Well, of course I can. Of course I can. You know, I'm not going not to turn that down. And so, right, you know, and they brought me in at minus five. Straight in, exactly the same thing. Firing, firing now, whoosh, bang. Wow. Two missiles, which when you look at the history of the firing of the red top, which didn't have a great reputation for reliability, yeah. and you've only got to look through, you know, old lightning yeah. books, uh, and you'll see photos of red tops coming apart. In fact, there's one really famous one in somebody's book where you can actually work out, or I was able at one stage to be able to work out all the various component bits of the red top because it came apart in, right, you know, yeah, yeah. and it was beautifully sharp on the, uh, on the gun camera uh, shots. Um, and then it was back to Valley. So recovered back to Valley with the Hawk. Uh, and of course, you know, I had to do a bit of a punchy run and break, didn't I? But, uh, you know, no, none of this faffing about at a thousand feet, you know, so in broke, landed. I've got a reception committee going, that was quick, <laughs> wow. you know, for, for the, 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 the station execs to, uh, to, have, to have actually, uh, you know, responded to my yeah. low arrival. <laughs> um, you know, very impressive. So I taxi in and shut down and get out and I'm greeted by the station commander and OC ops and the station photographer. And there's that lovely photo which you put on the, uh, uh, which you put up uh, on the website, on Facebook, of, of me standing by the lightning. It's a great photo. That was the shot after I'd just stepped from the aeroplane, having done that firing. Wow, that's amazing. Um, continuing the story from there, of course, you know, we went in, they took my gun camera film and went and, uh, went and developed it, so we were able to have a look at that about an hour, half an hour later or whatever. And uh, I got on the phone to, to Binbrook um, to discover that all hell's let loose at Binbrook. Of course, once they'd sorted out JC's aeroplane, mm -hmm. they towed it out of the queue hangar, uh, queue shed, and put Q3 in there. And then a couple of unidentified contacts appeared northwest of the Hebrides, and they launched JC in Q3 uh, with a tanker, uh, which was a victor out of Marham. And he went and picked up, I believe, a couple of uh, Soviet Bear Deltas really? uh, off, the, off the Hebrides. Wow. And of course, I'm there going, can I go and join him, please? <laughs> no. so and they went, no, Too much come, fun for you. <laughs> no, come home. And of course, they'd already armed another aeroplane right. up in support, um, you know, to possibly, you know, no, you've got no weapons. You know, I've got a gun. <laughs> yeah, I'm still useful. <laughs> I'm, I'm closer, you know, but yeah. they wouldn't let me. So I had to fly back yeah. uh, empty. Uh, and of course, it got to midday. JC was still out there chasing, chasing two Bear Deltas at the time, which was, uh, which was pretty damned awesome. So you both got something on so that. We, and we, we both got something. Yeah. And actually, you know, if I hadn't got the missiles, I'd have got the bears. Exactly. So, so the last day uh, did end up being, uh, being incredibly, uh, you know, in incredibly uh, interesting. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, midday, we did officially down declare from NATO, even though JC was still out there chasing bears at the time. Um, and we had a great celebration. And we had a better celebration the following day because it was my 23rd birthday. <laughs> Which is why I can always remember the 27th yeah, of April. Go, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So, Grinner, how many hours did you get on the Lightning and did you enjoy your time on the jet? Ah, well, to answer the last one first, yeah, absolutely. I had a great time, met some uh, fantastic people um, and friends for life, which, which is, of course, you know, you know absolutely, uh, absolutely uh, the best thing ever. Um, you know, and I've, I, you know, the great thing about that uh, and the friendships that you make in, 
in jobs like that that I don't think people who, who haven't served in a, I suppose you could call it almost an, an, an elite military unit, you know, is that, is that that comradeship does last forever and you can go for years. In some cases, you know, there are colleagues that I haven't seen for since Binbrook days who I now bump into and you just get together and you, uh, you know, nothing's changed. We've just all got greyer, greyer (laughs) and probably a little bit more filled out um, and less hair in in my case. Uh, Hours-wise, I finished off on the Lightning with uh, 372 hours. So just short of 400 hours. Not so, hard. so I, I did really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, even for uh, even for those days and for pretty short flights, you know, it does average when you look at the dates because I left just short of two two years. So had I done another month of full squadron flying, I would probably have cracked 400 hours. So that's 200 hours a year, which is pretty good. Uh, and that was essentially, you know, was the average on on frontline squadrons at those times anyway. Um, Probably more takeoffs and landings than a lot of people did, though. So, Grinder, then you got posted to the Tornado F3. How did you feel about this? Um, it was the natural progression, really. Um, as the uh, as the Lightning folded, you know, the Lightning squadrons five and eleven both became Tornado F3 squadrons, um, and those, you know, there were a few people who sort of fought back, uh, fought back. Uh, with it. Uh, quite a number of the guys were leaving the Air Force, having been on short service commissions, and they went off to the airlines. Um, and there were a number of people who uh, really didn't want to go to a two-seat aeroplane. Uh, yeah. So there were quite a number of people who, uh, who went off to a place like Chivner and Brody uh, to be instructors on the Hawk attack weapons units at the time. Um, but the remainder of us, we were all toted to go to the F3. Uh, there was never any talk about anybody going to the F4, because of course the F4 was in its latter days as well. And uh, another time, the uh, the Tornado F3 force was was you know being generated. Uh, squadrons were being generated uh, as time went on. And uh, certainly myself and my cohorts uh, that left Binbrook at the same time, we all ended up being on the same course. Uh, and uh, allocated to uh, essentially form uh, what was to become 23 Squadron uh, at RF Leeming. Mm. So we were all quite happy that we were going up to what was essentially a new base, because of course Leeming had been a training base for many, many years up in North Yorkshire. It was, for me, returning almost to my homeland, because I grew up in North Yorkshire, though not that part of, mm-hmm. I, I grew up on the coast. Um, and uh, you know we were going to be the second squadron to form at, uh, at, at Leeming. Uh, Eleven Squadron had been the, the first one, uh, so we were going to be the second one. We were moving into the first of the hardened aircraft sites, which, believe me, was a building site when we arrived in uh, in November 1988. So we 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 did what was essentially a bit of an abridged course. It wasn't a short course, but it wasn't as long as what they call a long course. So they, they acknowledged that we were all experienced operators um, and we would be, but of course, the one thing we had to learn was how to fly with a navigator because yeah. none of us had ever done it before. And I think probably that was the greatest challenge for, for most of us. You know, we were used to being our own bosses. We were used to making all the decisions, you know, and getting used to using another, another set of brains. Um, and in fact, uh, the guy that I was crewed up with on the OCU, I ended up being crewed up with on the squadron. And initially, we 
didn't get on particularly well at all. Oh, really? Uh, we were two very, very strong characters coming from two separate backgrounds. Um, and we had, we had a few disagreements, but over the years, we actually became great colleagues. Uh, and in fact, we were really, really lucky um, in one of my later tours, uh, when I was back on 11 Squadron again in the mid-90s, um, I ended up being crewed with this individual and people used to you know, look at us and go, how on earth do you two do this? Because you hardly, you know, you don't really have any great dialogue. You just know what each other does again. Well, we've flown with each other for so much now, you know, so from going from those really rocky early days, you know, we actually ended up being, you know, a fantastic operating pair, mm. you know, and, and that was the thing I discovered over the years uh, on the F3 was that, that I, you know, I really got to, you know, appreciate what a really, really good backseater can can bring to the operating party. You know, it really is two heads working, working. You know, uh, at the same problem. You know, and we never ever got upset with me putting out a radio call that maybe he ought to have been doing in his role. You know, and him taking control of something if he saw something developing before I did. You know, we never ever got upset about that in the latter days. We just got on with it. Mm -hmm. You know, so we we ended up actually being you know. Uh, almost like a model crew, you know, uh, an example for the others, which of course at the end of the day as an experienced operator that's what you're supposed to be. Yeah, you're supposed to be developing the younger, the younger crews to, to be more effective mm -hmm. um, uh, as that. So yeah, so we, we, we uh, formed the squadrons up at uh, Leeming and of course we had to work all the squadrons up through um, you know, operational, uh, operational build-up to be um, declared to NATO and then so we had to go through all the pain of what that meant, not just for the squadron, but for the station as well, because the station was doing the same thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, we just got up there and then the Berlin Wall came down and things sort of changed. Although they didn't change overnight, but, but certainly the emphasis changed. And then, of course, in 1990, everything changed when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, since the 1930s, 1940s, you know, the British military got involved with the Middle East again. Yeah. Uh, and has done so ever since, mm -hmm. you know, in various guises from Iraq to Afghanistan to Syria and everything else that's uh, involved in between. Mm -hmm. um, in 1990, I applied to go and be a qualified weapons instructor uh, because the F3, really, really early days, it was a very, very poor, it was in a very poor state. Um, the radar, the original version of the radar that we operated with was, the, the kindest way of saying was incredibly disappointing. You know, it was supposed to be this all singing, all dancing radar. And in fact, when it worked, it was so clumsy and awkward to operate <clears throat> that it really wasn't very, very effective at all. Uh, the aircraft itself, um, more fuel, more internal fuel for a start. Uh, so, you know, the internal fuel on, on this aeroplane is uh, 5,700 kilograms. So, you know, almost double what we had on the smaller Lightnings, mm -hmm. um, albeit, you know, not too much more than the, the Mark VI Lightning had, um, you know, when you do the maths, a li little bit more, mm -hmm. but the engines were far, far uh, uh, more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the big issue was that they took an aeroplane that was designed, albeit multi-role combat aircraft, as it was originally called. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was optimised for low level. 
so the engine's optimised for operating at lower level, where they're magnificent. You know, the, the wing, the swept wing idea, you know, when you look at what the Americans did with the Tomcat, with the Navy, um, you know, it's a fantastic idea, but it does have limitations mm -hmm. um, and isn't necessarily the best airframe uh, for, for the air defence task. You know, what the Lightning did really well at the upper levels, you know, sort of, you know, 30,000 feet, 40,000 feet, the Tornado F3 struggled with yeah. because of that optimization for low level. And along with the poor radar, it really was uh, quite a frustrating aeroplane to operate. I'd always wanted to be a, a, a weapons instructor, um, and I saw that as a way to be in there and to sort of help that development of tactics uh, and have that contact with industry to be able to um, you know, improve matters. Mm -hmm. And of course, over the years that I was with the F3, you know, sort of from 1990, 1990 was where, uh, when the Gulf War, uh, or when, when Saddam invaded Kuwait and then subsequently the Gulf War in 1991, that's really where we got a lot of really, really good modifications uh, added into the aeroplane that really started to make the aeroplane more effective. So we had improved uh, radar, so uh, it was much, much better than the original one that we'd been operating only two years earlier. Um, the, uh, there were a lot of modifications that were put into the aeroplane to help uh, the operation of it. So, for example, the guys in the back seat, um, you know, operating in the back seat, they put the grab handles in. Oh, so yeah. they were able to hold on to these things and turn around. Everybody's seen Top Gun and Goose twisting around in his seat, holding on to grab handles in the F-14. Well, we got grab handles similar to that, which meant the back seaters could actually turn around to be able to look what was going on behind the aeroplane if they needed to. Surely. <laughs> it should have been one of the first things. And tied onto those were, were buttons to be able to release chaff and flares. You know, the aeroplane in its original days didn't have chaff and flare. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, chaff and flares were added as a modification to the aeroplane. Um, initially as, a, as, an, as an emergency modification for the Gulf War, and they stayed an emergency modification for many years. But then, of course, as time went on, uh, we then got involved with Optini flight over Bosnia in yes. 1993 until 1996. Um, and a lot of these modifications needed to be made more permanent. Um, and usually the, the system of modifications takes years to go through all its release, but you can bring them in on urgent operational requirements. And the, the issue was then, you know, actually making them better to make them permanent modifications to the aeroplane. Uh, and what you see on ZE-204 here are, are so the, the, the final iteration of the, uh, of the flare dispensers, of which this aeroplane actually has them, um, which are able to carry uh, you know, a decent amount of flares you know, as a proper modification attached to the engine doors, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas the, the initial ones were basically scabbed on the aeroplane. <laughs> you know, and it, it really was you know, a scabbed on modification you know, that, that did, have, did have issues because you, know, you don't have the proper wiring you know, installed in, in those in, in initial stages. So I've obviously stood in front of ZE-204, but you've actually flown out a few times, haven't you? I've flown quite a lot over the years, yeah. Um, initially, uh, the, the aeroplanes, uh, the, the initial delivery of uh, Tornado F3s uh, went to Coningsby, so initially the OCU 
uh, and they were the very early numbers of which ZE204 is obviously one of them though I think the, the the numbers for the F3 started around ZE160 you know so around about those numbers so 204 is obviously one of those early batches and so was a Coningsby aeroplane for many years not quite sure what units it was on there uh, and so of course you know I didn't fly her on the OCU um, at any time um, so suspecting she was actually on one of the squadrons at the time um, and didn't really come across her until 1992 um, and in 1992 um, the uh, Leeming Wing got involved in deploying to Goose Bay in Canada for a short period of time. Why Goose Bay? Because the you know, air defence squadrons had never ever been to Goose Bay. It was very much a, a ground attack place where uh, the ground attack squadrons used to go to practice ultra low level flying in the, uh, in the completely wide open wastes of uh, northeastern Canada. Um, but the, uh, the, the, there was a uh, red flag exercises, a series of red flag exercises in early 1992 that a, that a whole load of uh, Tornado F3s were sent out to support and squadrons went through red flag. Uh, and the Air Force came up with the idea, well, Goose Bay's on the way back, we staged through Goose Bay anyway, so why not see if we can see if there's any training value in the air defence squadrons uh, going to Goose Bay? Uh, and so uh, the, uh, the Leeming Wing, I believe all three squadrons uh, ended up going out there. Um, so they cycled through on about two or three week deployments. Uh, and 20, on 23 Squadron, we were the second of the squadrons to do that. Uh, and that was the first time I flew 204. Uh, I flew her twice. Um, it was on sort of combined, uh, what we called combined air operations uh, uh, type uh, flights. So we were doing affiliation training. It was actually against the Dutch and the Germans, who also used to use Goose Bay quite a lot for the low level flying. Uh, and they were operating Tornado GR1s. Uh, Alpha jets in the case of the Germans as well. They had Alpha jets flying out there, um, and the Dutch were out there with F-16s. Uh, and so, whilst we were watching our our RAF Tornado GR1 colleagues going off as uh, pairs and going off and you know enjoying themselves flying around ultra low level, you know we were doing this this actually really quite good work. Uh, and out in uh, out in Canada, uh, I actually got my thousand hours on type. Nice. Interestingly enough, I flew this aeroplane the day before and I flew at the sortie after my thousand hours, but not specifically my thousand hour one. So, but I do bridge the thousand hours. I then didn't see the aeroplane for a number of years. Um, as, as, a, as a result of the, the Gulf War uh, and the fact that they uh, ended up modifying uh, aeroplanes uh, for operating out in the hot, hot dry desert, um, the uh, RF Lehman became sort of the center of, uh, of engineering for that. Uh, and there was a, there was a, a uh, a cadre of aeroplanes that were kept in a fully modified state for the desert and then they became the aeroplanes that continued to be fully modified for opt-deny right. flight over Bosnia yeah. and so on. So we had fleets within fleets uh, and so some aeroplanes had this bit of kit, some aeroplanes had that bit of kit and quite often you know if you wanted to train say for flying on night vision goggles then your, air, your, air, your squadron may not have those modified aeroplanes to do it, you have to have uh, the cockpit modified to make it suitable for night vision goggles. Uh, because the normal lighting, which used to be originally white and red in these, is totally unsuitable for night vision goggles. You need green lighting mm -hmm. because night vision goggles operate in the green spectrum and therefore you know you can't then see the lights yeah. uh, you know, in, in the cockpit and doesn't provide reflections. So aeroplanes will be swapped around uh, quite a lot. And this was one of the aeroplanes that I know was night vision goggle uh, modified 
because it ended up at Leeming after my ground tour, I came back to Leeming onto 11 Squadron for my, my second uh, stint on 11 Squadron. Um, and it was at that stage that we started to develop, properly develop, uh, night vision goggle um, tactics. Um, up to this stage, uh, up to 1996, this would be, um, you know, the Tornado F3 had been uh, operating to a, a limited level on night vision goggles. And in fact, we were the first air defense asset I believe in the world, certainly in Europe, and this is above the Americans uh, and anybody else uh, in air defense. We were the only airplanes that were operating night vision goggles in an air defense role. Uh, and in fact, in the first Gulf War, we were the only air-to-air -air asset that had night vision goggles. So we were the only people that were able to go, go and intercept low-level targets that were lights off over the Iraqi desert uh, to make sure that they were friendly or hostiles. The Americans did not have the capability to do it at the time. Which seems very strange. <laughs> Which seems very strange, but actually it was, it was quite a nice place to be. I mean, obviously, subsequently, you know, they, they do have that capability, as you'd expect. You know, but there, there were a lot of different things going on in the, in the F3 at the time. Uh, and RF Leeming, the 11 Squadron in particular, which was the one that I was on, um, where uh, we focused very much on night vision goggle uh, training. So we went from doing the basic stuff, which every squadron did, which was medium level uh, intercepts, to doing low level stuff. And there was a period of time in 96, 97, and going through into 98, where we had uh, crews trained to actually fly around at low level uh, on night vision goggles, and to be able to do intercepts at low level. Uh, and it was a great capability, and we, we developed all sorts of, uh, all sorts of tactics uh, and uh, techniques for, uh, for using the night vision goggles. And, uh, and actually, this was one of the airplanes that I did an awful lot of the flying uh, that night vision goggles stuff in. And when I look back through my logbook, there's a whole host of, uh, of uh, NVG training sorties at low level uh, that I did in 204. So that was a period of time when the airplane was very definitely uh, on 11 Squadron. Uh, I then subsequently uh, moved as a flight commander uh, on promotion to 25 squadrons, so just moved around to the next Hass site, um, and uh, again carried on with that, um, and flew uh, 204 on a number of occasions over those years. I mean, obviously, it didn't just do NVG flying on it; did did a few other things, um, and in fact, uh, one you know, a couple of my last trips, uh, this aeroplane was uh, in the group of aeroplanes that were based out in Saudi Arabia when we were involved in, I can't remember what the British, uh, the British operation name was for it, but it was uh, doing uh, op deny, uh, not deny flight, uh, op southern watch. So uh, the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. So this was the period uh, before the second Gulf War. So we started doing that in 1999 until uh, 2003. And then of course the second Gulf War happened and then that ceased to be a thing yeah. uh, at that stage. Uh, but 204 was certainly out, out in the desert that time. And uh, I flew two or three, two or three flights, you know, one of which was only 10 minutes because it had had some engineering work and needed a thing called an inverted flight check because somebody had dropped something in the cockpit. And you appreciate oh. the loose articles in yeah. cockpits aren't, aren't, uh, aren't very welcome. And of course, if you can't find it by visual look, then they have to take the ejection seats out and they have to take panels out and try and find things. Uh, so you're not going to be a popular person. So, so you're not going to be a popular person if you drop a pen or anything like that in the cockpit. That's why you see pilots generally have got, fast jet pilots have 
pens tied to them with bits of string for that very reason. Um, and, uh, and, a, and we were, I was tasked with a one day to go and do an inverted flight check. Um, and uh, we got airborne and what, all an inverted flight check was, was you go up to a safe height, you turn the aeroplane upside down, close your eyes, because the cockpit would be full of dust, and you give it a good shake around to see if you could dislodge anything if they hadn't found the article. Uh, and then you come back and land. And so a 10 minute flight out in the desert was exactly that in this aeroplane. Um, and we didn't find anything apart from a lot of dust and sand and everything else. So I say, you usually did it twice, once with your eyes closed. Uh, and then you look very carefully to see if there's anything in the, in the canopy. And then you turn it the right way around, yeah. take a pause and then turn it around. Now this time looking, because you've yeah. already dislodged all the dirt. Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and, and that was, the, that was uh, one of the last times I flew uh, 204 because uh, the following year, I left the Air Force. So Green, overall, did you enjoy your time on the Tornado? Overall, yes, I did, yeah. Uh, I mean, I you know, did a lot of really, really interesting flying. I loved uh, being involved as a qualified weapons instructor because you were there you know, on a frontline squadron. You know, you're there at the forefront of all the tactics and the weaponeering. So yeah, it was, it was great. Um, regrets? Not very many. So no, I, 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 had a, I had a great time on the Tornado. Uh, and what I would like to say is, you know, the, the Tornado F3 that I, that I talked about when I first went there in 1988 uh, to the aeroplane I last flew at the beginning of 2004 was a very, very different beast. You know, we'd take, taken an aeroplane that was really in its infancy and really was not suited to task to an aeroplane that was actually really quite tactically capable. Um, you know, it had, a, it had a very, very decent weapon system, uh, decent weapons on it. It had the AMRAM, it had the ASRAM, uh, you know, it had all the modifications that we've talked about. It had uh, Link 16 uh, jated, so it had Datalink, uh, which we'd been using out in the desert. It up, so it was a very, very good tooled up aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, did, did I achieve what I wanted to do, you know, as a weapons instructor? Well, of course, it wasn't my, it wasn't all my work. I was just a small cog in a very, very big wheel of people, you know, because as weapons instructors, you know, we were all involved in it. But yeah, you know, with that and a lot of hard work from the people who worked in, you know, behind the scenes in all the various headquarters that supported the modification programs, then uh, yeah, you know, we took, we took what was, what was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a dog and turned it actually into a very capable aeroplane by the end. Brenner, do you have any hobbies? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, f fortunately, it's all, it's all flying related. Um, <laughs> first, I started, I, I mentioned at the very beginning uh, that uh, I, did my, I did my gliding with the Air Cadets, but then I never looked at gliding until many years later when I was, I'd already been in the Air Force for a good number of years. And then a, a mate of mine who I'd known for a while taught me into going gliding and I got the bug. Uh, and I started, uh, started flying with my local uh, service club um, and I got involved in flying competitions, um, which was absolutely great fun and I did all right. Um, I became an instructor uh, in gliders back in the uh, 1990s and as time has gone on, you know, the bug has stayed with me. With me. Uh, absolutely love it and it keeps me, uh, keeps me sane with, uh, with some proper flying when my day-to-day -day job is sitting in an airliner, mostly monitoring what the autopilot is doing. Uh, though, you know, I would like to point out we still have to do the difficult bit of landing the aeroplane, particularly when the weather's poor. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've continued uh, instructing and I'm an examiner 
and I also do uh, do a couple of quite a bit of work with the British Gliding Association as well as their head of training for uh, uh, for the British Gliding Association as well. Added on to that, I love cycling. Uh, I mentioned the knee injury that I got when I went through uh, Cranwell when I went through initial officer training at Cranwell. Uh, that's dogged me all my life. So I'm I'm not a runner. I'm not built to be a runner, but I do do quite a lot of cycling as well. And of course, I have a family. I have a family, wonderful wife, uh, and a couple of uh, awesome daughters as well, the youngest of which is actually learning to glide. So keep them busy then, that's great. Keeps me busy, yeah. <laughs> favourite aircraft you've flown? The favourite aeroplane that I've flown? Ooh, it's a difficult one actually. Um, I suppose I would have to say it would be the Lightning, you know, because not as refined as this, you know, certainly not as war capable as this, but like going back to a vintage uh, Ferrari, just great fun, absolutely great fun. Like I said, I learned so much from that first two years, you know, that it stayed with me throughout my whole flying career. So yeah, definitely the Lightning. When you would like to fly either past or present? Spitfire. Really? Uh, yeah, without Spitfire any shadow of doubt. Um, yeah, I'd love to fly a Spitfire. I think it's, uh, I think it's the most beautiful aeroplane in the sky. If I couldn't fly that, or as an ad addition to that, if I've got to go to a jet, the Hunter. Hunter. Again, an aeroplane I've never had the opportunity to do, but everybody that I've spoken to has said the Hunter is just the most wonderful jet to fly. Well, Brenna, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure.